what we've seen in the first two weeks of the Biden administration is top Biden officials, including the Secretary of State, Tony Blinken, UN Ambassador uh, nominee, Linda Thomas-Greenfield, coming out with very strong anti-BDS statements and Thomas Greenfield actually pledging to use her position at the United Nations to fight BDS. The Electronic Intifada. The Electronic Intifada. The Electronic Intifada. This is the Electronic Intifada podcast. Welcome to the Electronic Intifada podcast. I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman in California. And I'm Asa Winstanley in London. And welcome to the wonderful world of video. For those of you <laughs> listening at home uh, on your podcast, you now have the option of seeing us um, on a popular video streaming service online. <laughs> we are finally entering the 20th century. Um but uh, yeah, we, we thought uh, it would be a great way to bring in the new year, um, to add video to our platform, to our podcast, and we're really excited to get this off the ground. Yeah, and we thought that uh, bringing on our colleague Ali Abu Nema would be the perfect way to launch our pilot video podcast episodes. Ali, welcome back to the podcast. Hello, Asa. Hello, Nora. It's always an honor to be invited onto the Electronic Intifada <laughs> podcast. You know, it's like... Long time listener, and uh, not my first time, but you know, always yeah, happy sure. to come on. Well, we're happy to have you. Um, and, and now, wanted... and now, and 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 I, I don't have the fancy camera here, but I think people can see me. Yes, it's great. Um, and uh, we wanted to have you on to talk about the Biden administration and what the return of the corporate pro-war, pro-Israel Democrats in the White House means for Palestine and Palestinians. Um, let's get right into it. Uh, it's been about two weeks since the inauguration, and already we're seeing, you know, the, the kind of resurgence of neoliberal foreign policy um, on Biden's, you know, website uh, and all throughout his campaign. He was always kind of reiterating his staunch support for Israel, um, denigrating the BDS movement, smearing um, activists for Palestinian rights as anti-Semites. What's your kind of general take on uh, where we are and, and, and what we can expect with Biden? Well, uh, that's a big question, of course. And I mean, you know, the, the, part, the, the first thing to say is the past few years of Trump really showed us, uh, really highlighted that there, there is this permanent uh, military political establishment in the United States, which uh, spans both Republicans and Democrats and is really driven by, um, you know, the arms industry and the major corporations that really fund the government and fund the politicians. Uh, I mean, fund their campaigns and in return receive massive government largesse and contracts. And that really is the permanent party in power. And they saw Trump as sort of an aberration. And so um, the Biden administration represents for this neoliberal establishment um, an imper imperial establishment, a return to quote-unquote normal. And, um, you know, perhaps with some slight adjustments, but the, you know, the big picture, I think, was summed up in the, uh, what was billed as the first major foreign policy speech that uh, Biden gave at the State Department this week. And uh, there's just a couple of paragraphs that I think really stand out that highlight the kind of thinking that we're going to see from the Biden administration. And he said, you know, this is Biden. I want the world to hear today, America is back. America is back. Diplomacy is back at the center of our foreign policy. And then he talks about American leadership uh, to meet this moment of advancing authoritarianism, including the growing ambition of China to rival the United States and the determination of Russia 
to damage and disrupt our democracy. So in just those sentences, you have distilled a couple of central ideas. One is the notion of quote-unquote American leadership. So this unchanged ambition for world domination. Americans may have elected Joe Biden to be their leader, but the world definitely didn't elect the United States to be its leader. But this kind of American exceptionalism that assumes that the U.S. has the, um, the, the natural right to lead the world, and then the targeting of China as a rival. Why should China be a rival? I don't understand why we always have to see other countries as rivals rather than partners, but that's already baked into the idea. And then the continuation of the totally bogus Russiagate narrative of uh, China trying to damage and disrupt our democracy, this completely evidence-free dogma and orthodoxy that the Democrats and uh, corporate media have been pushing for years, that, um, you know, Hillary Clinton lost the election not because she couldn't win enough states, but because of uh, Russian memes on Facebook and all that kind of nonsense that is still deeply drilled into the brains of so many Democrats. Uh, and then he, he talks about, um, you know, this, this delusional sentence, we must start with diplomacy rooted in America's most cherished democratic values, defending freedom championing opportunity, upholding universal rights, respecting the rule of law, and treating every person with dignity, as if that has ever been the case either in the United States domestically or in U.S. foreign policy where, you know, everyone knows, everyone outside the delusional bubble of American exceptionalism knows that there's no bigger purveyor of war and coups and sanctions and destruction all over the world than the United States. And uh, so it goes on in that vein. Uh, the, only, the only thing that's sort of, and I think it highlights, I mean, the, the belligerence uh, inherent in this worldview. Uh, Biden talks about his conversation with, uh, uh, with President Putin of Russia. He says, I made it clear to President Putin in a manner very different from my predecessor that the days of the United States rolling over in the face of Russia's aggressive actions, interfering with our elections, cyber attacks, poisoning its citizens are over. We will not hesitate <laughs> to raise the cost on Russia and defend our vital interests and our people. I mean, yeah, it's kind of amusing because it's all lies, lies yeah. that will never it's be... projection. Yeah, it's lies that will never be called out by CNN and the New York Times. The lie that the United States rolled over under Trump when, in fact, the United States ra aggressively ramped up sanctions against uh, Russia during the Trump administration, expanded NATO, uh, moved U.S. forces into the Baltic states on Russia's border, has been working very hard to sabotage the Nord Stream 2 a pipeline, which uh, is planned to bring um, uh, gas from Russia to Western Europe. Those are all things that were done under Trump. Uh, and, and yet the lie that is being pressed by Biden, and which is widely believed by Americans who seem to be very prone to conspiracy theories, um, that uh, I don't know if it's just part of American culture to believe conspiracy theories. There are apparently parts of the world where conspiracy theories are popular. Um, and, uh, you know, and it goes on in, in, in that vein. Um, so the, the big picture, you know, what that speech confirms, I think, is our worst fears, that this is going to be an administration that is a, a return to the status quo of attempted U.S. world domination, attempted um, U.S. interference in other parts of the world, uh, whereas, you know, what has been China's big threatening initiative in the past few years? It's the Belt and Road Initiative, which is about bringing trade and uh, cooperation. You can love it or hate it, but China is not putting big military bases around the world. I think China has a single 
uh, military base outside its borders, uh, and it's a pretty small one, whereas the United States has hundreds. Uh, so China is, is bringing construction of infrastructure, trade, uh, medicine, all sorts of things to countries all over the world that need them. And that's their rationale for cooperating with China. What does the United States bring? It brings military bases, arms sales, military coups, uh, soft coups, you know, it, it funds opposition groups, it funds subversives. That's what the U.S. is offering the world. And you have this delusional view from Biden, shared by the elites in this country, that the U.S. is not just a force for good, but is seen as a force for good, and that that was only uh, damaged in the last few years by Trump. But before that, everyone loved the United States, and they're going to go back to loving it now. And then, you know, there's uh, this sort of huge uh, influx from back from the think tanks and the defense contractors and the lobby shops and the influence peddling firms back into the administration. You know, people like uh, Anthony Blinken, the Secretary of State, which who ran a, a, an influence peddling shop, the Defense Secretary, the new Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin, who until what two, three weeks ago was on the board of Raytheon, one of the biggest arms suppliers, and the list goes uh, on and on. So that's kind of the big picture. When you look at the the Middle East, uh, there have been some interesting moves, the suspension of uh, arms sales to the UAE and Saudi Arabia, but it, it remains to be seen if that's just a cosmetic move to make a headline or leads to anything else. And the announcement that the US will end its support for um, the Saudi UAE war in Yemen. And we, we have to see what that translates into action, not forgetting, of course, that um, that that war was started under Obama. That is, the, the war on Yemen is an Obama-Biden war. It's a Democrat war, to use the, the, the infamous term that uh, Bob Dole used uh, back in, in, was it the 1970s? Uh, so, you know, it's like what Biden is doing, if he actually follows through on that, is undoing the some of the damage that he and Barack Obama did in the first place. I think that uh, when Joe Biden said America is back, he probably thought that he was being, you know, trying to be Uncle Joe, the reassuring new president. But I think to most of the world, it sounds more like a threat, really. Yeah, yeah, but it, but but it is reassuring to some people, and we should think about who it's reassuring to. It's reassuring to you know the uh, the the. The, the 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 American vassals in Europe, and you know the the other regimes that rely on um, you know American support and patronage. So you know those words are just like music to the ears of people in the EU and and probably even the likes of Boris Johnson. I mean, yes, they like Trump and yeah. they got along with Trump, but Trump was a little unpredictable. So, so there, there is sort of uh, an element in the world, the, the sort of outposts of the U.S. empire, who will welcome uh, this kind of language from uh, Biden. But for, the, for most of the world, yeah, I think it, it, it is, objectively speaking, a threat, particularly in Latin America, where um, the, the, so far we haven't seen Biden rolling back the brutal sanctions on Venezuela, uh, we haven't seen him re yet rescind uh, the additional sanctions that uh, Trump imposed on Cuba. We haven't seen him rescind any of the cruel sanctions imposed by um, Trump on Iran, which is on top of the Obama sanctions that um, deprive Iranians of uh, medicine in the middle of a pandemic. So, we, you know, those are all things he could do right away. Of course, we haven't seen him rejoin the, um, the Iran nuclear deal that the Obama administration uh, negotiated. And instead, what we've seen already is sort of an attempt to impose additional uh, conditions on Iran, which are outside 
the, the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal, as a condition. So in, uh, to, to get additional concessions out of Iran when it was the United States that violated the agreement in the first place. Of course, Iran has made the perfectly reasonable offer that, look, the U.S. left the um, agreement, but we're prepared to uh, forgive and forget and agree to a simultaneous return to compliance. And so far, the U.S. hasn't agreed to that perfectly reasonable uh, position. So that's the big picture before we even get to Palestine. Yeah. Yeah, yeah there was a, I can't, I think it was maybe CNN or some, some other mainstream outlet that um, attempted to portray Biden's, um, you know, relationship with Israel as, as kind of like a, um, you know, an awkward kind of like post breakup sort of thing with Netanyahu where he, you know, Netanyahu was um, was, of course, a, a dear friend of Trump. But um, but they they tried to, to make it look like Biden and Netanyahu were somehow um, opposing forces or on, on different sides of, of the, you know, the situation in Palestine, um, which I thought was of course, just hysterical, um, but 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 also like very you know plays into that that um, sense of delusion, of you know liberal corporate Democrats um, somehow you know working in the interest of of Palestinians and working in the interest of um, you know this this so called peace um, process. So let's let's turn a little bit to Palestine and to. Biden's and the Democrats' historical relationship with Israel, um, what uh, you know, what the relationship has been between them and the Netanyahu administration, um, and and where where that will go. Yeah, I mean, the big story of the past two years, the big trend that we've seen in the United States and in other Western countries is that support for Israel has collapsed on the left. And even within the basis of the mainstream uh, sort of center-left parties, which supposedly the Democratic Party is, or, or what passes for a center-left party in the United States, the same thing has happened in the UK, as Asa knows, of course, from his his recorded his reporting over the past five years. And so, how this played out in the UK was that the collapse of support for Israel. Um, on the left and even within the Labour Party, remembering, of course, that the Labour Party historically has always been a very pro-Zionist, pro-Israel party. But the collapse of, of that support for uh, Israel meant that uh, Israel and its lobbies had to wage uh, a, a war, basically, against the Labour Party, against Jeremy Corbyn, to bring it to heel, and that has effectively happened now. The Labour Party is under the control of Keir Starmer, who has a self-described Zionist. In the Supporter US, of Zionism without qualification. Exactly, and that shows in his policies. But that, that doesn't change the basic dynamic that within the base of the Labour Party, or its potential base, there's very strong support for Palestinian rights and very strong opposition to, to the these sorts of policies, which have to be imposed really by brute force from the top. That's what we're seeing in, in the UK, where any, any dissenter has to be purged from the, literally purged from the party. And it's a similar dynamic in the United States, but it's, it's harder because we don't have, uh, you know, parties in the United States are different from the UK and from Europe. They're not as centralized. Uh, you, you can't just impose that sort of discipline uh, from, you know, the party's central headquarters. So it's been, you know, sort of a slow war of attrition between the party elites and the party base over the question of Palestine. It's played out particularly over BDS and support for BDS, the boycott, divestment and sanctions movement. But the big story in the United States, really the big picture has been that the base of the Democratic Party has become much less pro-Israeli and much more supportive of Palestinian rights, whereas in general support for Israel in the U.S. has shifted to the right, to the Republican Party. And, but the, 
the leadership of the Democratic Party, the Barack Obamas, the Nancy Pelosi's, the Joe Bidens, the Kamala Harris's, the Pete Buttigieg's, B Buttigieg, uh, <laughs> Pete Buttigieg. <laughs> who knows? Uh, who cares? Yeah. Uh, the, their, their support for Israel remains absolutely solid. And that is what is reflected. And of course, you know, to the extent that there was a, a shift, I mean, Bernie Sanders, a lot of supporters of Bernie Sanders were much more pro-Palestinian. They pushed Bernie Sanders, although he remains a strongly pro-Israel uh, figure. Uh, Sanders, uh, you know, he, for example, he does not support BDS. Um, he he has made some good, you know, some strong statements about Gaza and so on. Um, so, but what we see now in the Democratic Party is just uh, rolling over all that base support for Palestinian rights. The Democratic Party platform uh, really does not, uh, I, I mean, it, it's very pro-Israel. It could have been written in the early 90s or even the 1980s. Yeah. Um, and uh, what we've seen in the first two weeks of the Biden administration is top Biden officials, including the Secretary of State, Tony Blinken, UN Ambassador uh, nominee, Linda Thomas-Greenfield, coming up with very strong anti-BDS statements. And Thomas-Greenfield actually pledging to use her position at the United Nations to fight BDS. And in one of the more worrying statements, actually, Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary, Coming out, this was pointed out by Josh Rubner in a piece he wrote for the Electronic Intifada this week, pointing out how Janet Yellen is pledging to use her position as a Treasury Secretary to fight boycotts of Israel. And that's very worrying because the Treasury Department has immense power through the Office of Foreign Assets Control and other mechanisms to uh, you know, harass companies uh, or individuals that are involved in, in BDS. So we have to see what that translates into, but it's worrying. And what's also worrying is that the State Department has come out and strongly embraced the so-called IHRA definition of anti-Semitism, which as we know, and we've discussed many times, is not about fighting anti-Jewish bigotry, but is about smearing and silencing and censoring um, support for Palestinian rights and criticism of Israel. So out the door, the Biden administration has reaffirmed um, strongly pro-Israel policies. It has not reversed key uh, Trump policies, such as the recognition of Jerusalem as Israel's capital, the, recogn the, the recognition of uh, settlements as not illegal, uh, and uh, other measures like that. Well, maybe they will, but so far they haven't. And those are things they could have done by now if they, if they were serious about them. Right. I think even Biden said, <clears throat> excuse me, um, that he, like, he wasn't interested in moving the embassy um, back to Tel Aviv, that, that he was basically, it was, it was just going to kind of roll over into the status quo and to, into new facts on the ground. Um, talk a little bit more about the U.S. war on BDS, um, the, the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement. Um, as Josh Rubner, as you mentioned, uh, he wrote in his piece this week that, um, you know, uh, let's see, where did I, sorry. Um, right, so Anthony Blinken uh, kind of reiterated um, his and President Biden's, you know, resolute opposition to BDS. And then Blinken went on to claim that the BDS campaign, quote, unfairly and inappropriately singles out Israel and creates a double standard that we do not apply to other countries. I mean, complete, you know, it's just completely um, um, not fact based. <laughs> it's just it's, it's delusion. Um, meanwhile, at the same time, we have, you know, 30 U.S. states that have passed anti-BDS measures. Um, some more uh, restrictive than others. Um, we have, you know, the Trump administration's um, 
you know, executive order, basically um, deeming the BDS movement as uh, an act of anti-Semitism. Um, again, like, you know, also like incorporating the, the, um, the so-called definition of, definition of anti-Semitism, the IHRA. Um, and, you know, and, and we see um, more and more administrations uh, of, of universities here in the U.S., taking a, a hard line against um, Palestinian students who want to organize for, for, uh, for Palestinian rights. Um, can you talk a little bit about how this, like, yeah, just how, how this new era, this, this, this um, uh, you know, uh, rehabbed Obama administration <laughs> um, in the form of the Biden administration will continue this war, especially against activists, against students, against civil rights defenders, um, and, and what that means for the BDS movement here? Yeah, it, it, I'd say the main uh, thing I'm seeing between Trump and Biden on these issues is continuity rather than any kind of break. Just before um, leaving office, Trump's Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, uh, I think it was declared the BDS movement to be anti-Semitic. And uh, uh, Biden's UN ambassador, in her um, confirmation hearing, agreed with the position that the BDS movement is basically anti-Semitic, so no change there. Uh, the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism, which was originally adopted by the Obama State Department, doubled down on by Trump, and now Biden confirms that... Um, you know, the, the Biden administration confirms that they embrace, not only embrace that definition, but will be pushing countries around the world to adopt it. So uh, they're, they're committed to uh, evangelizing for this, for the notion that criticism of Israel and its racist state ideology, Zionism, is the same as hating Jews, and uh, which is, uh, you know, as we've said before, a, an inherently anti-Semitic idea, the equation of Jews with Israel, which is what this definition uh, actually does under, you know, uh, under the ostensible uh, cover of fighting anti-Semitism. Um, the, only, the only silver lining, you could say, is that uh, Blinken did acknowledge uh, that, um, you know, uh, the, the administration will defend first will will respect first amendment rights uh, in the context of bds but what does that really mean in a context where the most egregious and serious and troubling violations of uh, free speech are not being done by the government uh, i mean there are the government is is violating free speech rights in many ways but the ones that affect most people, the ones being done by Silicon Valley companies, by Facebook, by Twitter, by, uh, you know, other social media firms that because they're private, the First Amendment doesn't apply to them, but they are effectively monopolies. I mean, this is a point people like Glenn Greenwald and others make repeatedly, and I think compellingly, is that, you know, we live in a world where the First Amendment doesn't provide enough protection to fr from censorship because we're speaking through networks right now that are controlled by private companies and that can shut us off anytime they want. As you've reported, as Zoom has done with seminars with Leila Khaled, as uh, Twitter and Facebook have done, as we've reported many times, shutting down the accounts of Palestinian journalists. And more widely now, we see many um, uh, left-wing independent outlets having their YouTube channels demonetized, having their accounts shut down, and so on. That's the real threat. And, and, and the, the democratic establishment, and this includes, by the way, so-called progressives like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez have, have been demanding that the social media companies do even more censorship. And that is now, you know, the social media censorship first started um, under the guise of Russiagate. Oh, this is about fighting Russian disinformation. And then um, 
also fighting ISIS. You know, who's really going to object to shutting down ISIS accounts? But now it's moved into so-called do domestic terrorism, where a lot of the Democrats uh, and national security state types uh, are demanding a war on domestic terror, which is going, which is going to include expanding the definition of terrorism and terrorist speech to more and more people. And the government doesn't have to uh, do the censorship itself when the Silicon Valley companies, which many of them work closely with the government, many of them have contracts with the government, are, are willing to do it themselves. So, the, so Blinken's reference to the First Amendment provides a tiny amount of reassurance that they're only willing to go so far, but not very much reassurance given where the bulk of the censorship is being done now. Perhaps it's just as well a recognition of reality that, you know, a lot of these laws are, are going to ultimately go to court and be defeated on, uh, on First Amendment grounds. What do you think about that? Yeah, and, and the laws themselves are a nuisance, but they are not really able to suppress free speech. You know, there's there's no law in any state that, um, well, I mean, I, I don't want to minimize the threat that, that some of them do. The laws that were overturned in Texas, in Arizona, and where else, nor there was another, Kansas. So, uh, there were laws that were overturned because they were clear violations of the First Amendment and clear threats to free speech, and they were overturned. And, and I think there are others that are threatening to free speech that have not yet been overturned. So I definitely don't want to minimize that. But some of the laws are more of a nuisance, uh, and they're more about sending the message that BDS is bad. They're more about demonizing supporters of Palestinian rights. So even if, if the uh, government, the federal government, is not going to try to prosecute people for BDS campaigns, the mere fact that top officials are out there demonizing the BDS movement, lying about the BDS movement, falsely accusing it of anti-Semitism, means that they are using their um, positions of immense influence and power to attack a civil society movement that is about defending human rights and, of course, challenging uh, U.S. support for Israel, which is destroying the lives of so many Palestinians. So, they don't they don't I'm saying that they are they can do damage without going to the extent of prosecuting people. Right. And it's yeah, it is a message that they're sending. It's also trying to, um, you know, encourage activists, students, um, professors um, to self-censor. And the, not chilling, even bring up the chilling effect yeah. is the biggest effect of all of these laws right. and all of these policies and all of these statements. It's about scaring people into silence. And right. we've seen time and again, uh, you know, I, I Stephen Salaita had a, a really nice uh, a tweet about this uh, a week or two ago, uh, where he said, you know, just remember that uh, anytime you hear a top university administrator giving, uh, you know, sort of a, a speech about universities, uh, fulfilling the highest values of academic freedom and so on. Just remember that administrator will, won't think twice before putting you out on your ass the minute they get a, a call from a, a, you know, a big pro-Israel donor. Of course, I'm paraphrasing, but that, that remains the case. And that, those are the biggest threats, more than um, you know, it is necessarily a prosecution by the federal government. And what also remains to be seen, because um, the under under it started under Obama, of course, but under Trump, we saw a whole slew of complaints filed to the Office of Civil Rights of the Department of Education, making uh, you know completely bogus and spurious accusations of anti-Semitism against various universities for not cracking down essentially on. Uh, Palestine solidarity campaigns, and uh, as far 
I think it's right that none of those have really gone anywhere. But, but the, you know, none of them resulted in an adjudication saying, yes, this university is, is guilty of this and must uh, impose these remedies. But those complaints are all about, again, harassment, lawfare, chilling, um, making university administrators more fearful and more cautious and more ready to crack, you know, preemptively crack down so that professors and students don't get out of line. And so it, it remains to be seen how aggressive, um, you know, wh whether the, uh, uh, the Biden Department of Education is going to, uh, how aggressive they're going to be with that kind of thing. Um, let's uh, move on and talk about a slightly different topic, but a different, another one of Biden's picks for his new top officials, Anne Newberger. So Anne Newberger, I think it's pronounced, is a top official at the National Security Agency um, and has been for the last eight years, I believe. Um, and there was uh, quite a good report in Mother Jones about how she has been picked as Biden's top uh, advisor to the National Security Council on cybersecurity. Um, but, uh, you know, public information of, of her uh, charity filings revealed that the charity that she and her husband controlled donated much higher than half a million dollars to APAC, the Israel lobby. Um, so, I mean, there's a lot to talk about in this story. Um, and uh, I think it's, it's quite shocking in some ways, really, but it's not surprising when you know the history behind all of this, is it? Yeah, this story, this story is so interesting because it's not just about this, this glaring fact uh, that a top cybersecurity official donated half a million dollars to the lobby for a foreign government. The Mother Jones story, you know, Mother Jones is interesting because they're, a, um, you know, a sort of a traditionally left-ish uh, magazine, but in the past few years they went full Russiagate, you know, just absolute Russiagate lunacy. Uh, so it's always surprising to see a, a well-researched, well-written story in Mother Jones these days, sadly. Um, but the the article raises, you know, first of all, it's it's based, the facts it reports are undisputed and undisputable because they're based on public filings that the charity has to make with the IRS. So nobody is disputing the fact that uh, Anne uh, uh, Newberger and her husband, Yehuda Newberger, donated half a million dollars to the Israel lobby group, APAC. That's undisputable. Right, because... I, I actually made out to be uh, $608,000. Yeah, well, I mean, whatever, it whatever it is, it's it's a lot. It's a large sum of money, <laughs> you know. I, I just just for ease of reference, we're saying half a million. Yeah. Uh, but you know, all of this is carefully documented in the filings that every charity has to file with the Internal Revenue Service. So that's not in dispute. Um, and the Mother Jones article raises very valid questions about um, and. Newberger's neutrality to play this role and 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 uh, uh, appropriateness to play this role, given that even top U.S. officials acknowledge that Israel is a major cybersecurity threat to the United States and has uh, all has and does spy on the United States. So right. there are major questions whose relevance nobody would dispute if all things being considered the country in question was not Israel, but Russia or China, or you name the country you want to name. <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> yeah, I mean, imagine if, if a, it had been yeah, a, top a official. Ran, like they donated to a exactly. pro-Iranian organization. You know, they, they right. would have been, it would have been called a national security threat. You know, it would have been called or Venezuela or Cuba. Yeah. Right. right. So all, all of that is a given. But what happened next is so interesting because, so this was reported by Mother Jones, it was picked up by NBC, which is a major network, of course, and they reported it. 
as, uh, you know, the headline, foundation linked to Biden pick for cybersecurity gave $500,000 to pro-Israel lobby APAC. The headline reflects uh, indisputable facts. There was an uproar, and NBC came under intense pressure, and um, they uh, added this editor's note to the story. I'm sorry, I, I, I don't have reading glasses, so I'm uh, <laughs> having to hold it at a distance. It says, editor's note. After a number of readers raised issues with this article, NBC News conducted a review and has determined that it fell short of our reporting standards. In order to warrant publication, it needed on-the-record quotes from critics rather than anonymous ones. Why? The article, <laughs> right. The article should have also included more views from those who believe that donations to APAC do not represent a conflict. And it did not give, and it did not give Newberger adequate time to respond to our reporting. NBC News is leaving the article on our website in the interest of full transparency with our readers. So basically, NBC News trashed their own article and put an editor's note, giving the impression to any reader that this that that this article is suspect and cannot be trusted. But of course, that's not true. None of what NBC is saying disputes the, the central fact that is being reported that Anne Newberger's founder, that Biden appointee Anne Newberger gave half a million dollars to APAC along with her husband. They're not disputing that. All they're saying, because that's not based on anonymous sources, that's based on public filings with the Internal Revenue Service. The only thing that uh, on anonymous sources provided were comments on this. Now, go back to the Mother Jones story. And Mother Jones, uh, and by the way, the Mother Jones story includes comments from some anonymous sources, but it also includes on-the-record comments from a former CIA official, John Cipher, who said, Quote, it's unwise at best. In her world, when people think of cyber threats, Israel is always there, even if it's an ally. It is surprising that someone in cyber who understands Israeli capabilities would not want to steer clear of these politics. So that's an example of an on-the-record comment about the undisputed facts uh, cited in the, um, in the Mother Jones magazine. But go back to Mother Jones. They added an update to their article, which is really interesting, because they say that um, they had sent Newberger uh, a request for comment. They'd given her two days to respond, which is plenty. You know, in the world of journalism, that's plenty of time to respond. We We typically give people... 24 hours, sometimes even less, depending on the story. But, you know, if somebody gives you, you know, if somebody contacts you, you can, you can say, well, actually, I need longer. And typically, they'll give you longer. But they're saying just because she was given two days. But uh, they were also promised a comment from the National Security Council. And they, this is what they say, update. After this article was published, this is Mother Jones, update. After this article was published, Emily Horn, an NSC spokesperson, sent Mother Jones the following statement, quote, We note that NBC has pulled down their own version of this story, saying it fell short of their reporting standards, and look forward to Mother Jones doing the same. So... <laughs> They don't deny the facts, but they want the article wow. removed anyway. Right. Well, first of all, NBC didn't pull down the article, so that's so that's a lie from the Biden administration that, yeah. that NBC pulled down uh, the article. What NBC did do was undermine its own solid reporting, its own undisputed reporting, and then the Biden administration uses that sleazy move by N NBC to. Uh, cast doubt on the Mother Jones story. 
but they don't actually dispute the facts. They don't say, no, it's not true that she gave half a million dollars to APEC. They can't say that because it's, uh, it's a lie. She did do it, and it's a matter of public record. Uh, and they also go into this whole business about how, um, you know, unnamed sources, and they say the Mother Jones article cited both named and un unnamed sources, and Mother Jones gave Newberger two days to respond to a query about her foundations and APAC donations. She did not respond. So she could have responded and said, uh, two days isn't enough. Can I have an extra day to compile my answer or, or whatever? Never did that. <clears throat> Mother Jones also contacted the president of the foundation, and he did not respond um, to repeated requests for comment. Mother Jones stands by our reporting. So what they've done, you know, NBC, for example, and of course the Biden administration and campaign, uh, who have uh, for years promoted the most outlandish Russiagate stories based on nothing. And all of a sudden, when it comes to this story, where the central fact is undisputed, all of a sudden they raise the standards to this sort of impossible level where it's not enough to have undisputed facts based on public filings with the IRS. That, that doesn't somehow prove the story. But also you have to have, I don't know how many on-the-record quotes. And the hilarious thing, you have to have, um, you have to have somewhat, you have to have people defending it from the perspective of APAC. So to me, it's just a story about the complicity of corporate, you know, the, 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 the NBC journalist, to his credit, did a perfectly good story, but clearly the corporate bosses who are, you know, uh, in the bag for the Biden administration, overruled it and trashed his story. And then the Biden administration could use that action by NBC to further trash the story. It just shows how utterly corrupt the mainstream media are. And it, it, it also shows the absolute refusal to give real hard scrutiny to uh, Israel and its role in uh, American politics, just as they, uh, the UK media refuses to um, look at Israel's role in British politics. The huge story, for example, I, I don't know if we've, we've talked that, about that on the podcast yet. I know you've talked about it on other podcasts, but Asa, you should talk about the, um, the, the Israeli spy story in the UK Labour Party and, and the refusal of the UK media to discuss it is I think, similar, if not on a bigger scale. Yeah, it's... I was just thinking as you were talking about uh, how NBC's higher-ups uh, effectively, you know, trashed their own story. Um, it reminded me very much of The Guardian, although The Guardian's approach was actually worse because they didn't cover the story at all. Um, but you should you should give a summary of the story, right. uh, Asa, just just because not everyone will know what it is. Yeah. So uh, we uh, the Labour Party has hired a former Israeli spy to work on its social media, which is the kind of story that I could not have made up and put into a film script because it would have been too outlandish. You know, it 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 really does beg a belief. It's shocking, but not entirely surprising in retrospect. Um, you know, Asaf Kaplan, an Israeli who's who's been hired uh, for the purposes of quote unquote social social listening, protecting the Labour Party's brand online, essentially by the sound of it, and doing who knows what else. You know, we know as you said before, like the Labour Party has been systematically purging critics of Israel. Um, uh, most recently, this week, there's been a series of videos from uh, activists. Um, Jewish members of the Labour Party who, you know, they're not um, these radical raging uh, communists, you know, these are quite often uh, Palestine solidarity activists, you know, people who used to be in the Labour Party before it turned into this Blairite monstrosity and then left in the Tony Blair years and are now being purged on the basis of um, their criticism of Israel or its racist state ideology Zionism or merely for expressing some sort of support for Jeremy Corbyn and um, Starman's purge of him. You know, there's all sorts of um, pretext for this purge. 
Um, and, you know, some activists were saying this this week um, about how uh, Keir Starmer has purged far more Jews from the Labour Party. You know, he, and Jeremy Corbyn um, did not uh, do anything remotely like that. Um, and he didn't even purge his political opponents, which, in my view, he should have done. But the, the, the question does very much remain. What exactly is Asaf Kaplan doing in Keir Starmer's office? He's working for the, le the new leader, relatively new leader, the Labour Party, Keir Starmer, although it's been almost a year now. Um, and Asaf Kaplan, just to, to you know, draw attention to this, spent five years in Unit 8200, which is the cyber warfare wing of the Israeli military, and in 2014, a group of whistleblowers from Unit 8200 detailed in a letter to The Guardian how they engage in systematic spying on Palestinians, uh, just blanket spying on, on everything Palestinians do, on their phone calls, whatever, looking for any kind of personal information uh, that can be used to blackmail them, to force them to become collaborators for political persecution. And I'm not, this is the, the kind of words I'm using are the words that the Unit 8200 veterans use in their right. letter. Harassment, blackmail, intimidation, mass surveillance. One of the most shocking details of the, um, the whistleblower's testimonies, which I'd not uh, seen before until I... Uh, in, you know, was doing research for this story was that um, Unit 8200 used to have a, a phrase uh, blood on the headset which was they would put an X on their headsets every time they'd been involved in the killing and assassination of a Palestinian you know presumably a resistance fighter although we don't know that for sure but in any case they were killing Palestinians and they were quite proud of it some of them it seems you know um, so, yeah. you know, what was this? And this is who the Labour Party, this is the kind of person right. who the Labour Party just so, hired. It's, it's so stuff. so ju just to just because I, I think this is so important. So uh, Asaf Kaplan spent five years in UT Unit 8200, which is uh, more than the uh, far more than the two years of compulsory military service in Israel. So this is someone who obviously uh, liked the work and saw it as some, you know, it wasn't forced into it in any way. Um, and and saw it as a way to enrich himself and benefit his career. You know, he boasted about it in his online profile that he was a veteran right. of Unit 8200. And the Labour Party, and then the, he was hired for a position at which the Labour Party advertised uh, at around 40, I think it was like 43,000 pounds per year, um, which is, you know, not a bad salary, but it's not, uh, you know, the sort of salary that um, you would think you'd be like, if you're trying to ha hire talent from around the world, you're going to bring someone especially from Israel, which is apparently what they did, because you were able to document that Kaplan seems to have moved or appears to have moved from Israel specifically to take up this moderately paid position in the Labour Party bureaucracy, which just happens to be in the office of the party leader, Keir Starmer. And presumably that in all of the UK, there was nobody who was capable of uh, fulfilling this <laughs> social media role. Yeah. And Beggar's you belief. broke... So, yeah, it beggars belief, at least raises some very interesting questions. You broke this story. I can attest that it went absolutely crazy in terms of uh, traffic. It, it, I, you know, I have to check, but it's probably one of the stories we've published that had the highest traffic, uh, you know, certainly within the first few days of its publication. It was, uh, you made... With this story, you made the Labour Party trend. Made globally. Israeli trend with the, <laughs> Yeah, UK with the Labour Party. <laughs> and activists all over the country were saying, what on earth is going on? And th th so now talk about how much uh, British mainstream media coverage of this story was there? None. Like, there was exactly nothing. Um, there was some very good media coverage from the left-wing media from the independent press, which is, 
you know, sort of burgeoning in this country, you know, websites like the Canary had me on, interviewed me about it. Um, the uh, Morning Star, you know, a venerable uh, communist newspaper did some good reporting following up on it. Uh, and Middle East Eye, you know, did did some very good, uh, you know, they found out some extra details, um, which I was quite appreciative of, where they, according to their sources, people were sort of Labour staffers were running around really worried, walking on eggshells, not sure what was going to happen next. So that was nice to hear. Um, but but no, yeah, there was zero from, mainstream media coverage. Yeah, you but know? Th there was nothing from the BBC, which infamously... Uh, created that graphic of Jeremy Corbyn wearing a Russian hat yeah. with, you know, the Kremlin <laughs> in the background, which which uh, was not not in any way prejudicial or or uh, you know and 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 how about the Guardian because uh, yeah well we this is the this Guardian is really was interesting and I yeah. I I think I will uh, include this in some of the follow up reporting I'm going to do next week hopefully that. Um, the, I mean, and I did tweet about this, but The Guardian, I was informed by two separate sources now, actually, that a Guardian journalist, you know, like you said, what, like, like the NBC reporter who did, you know, did a competent job. This Guardian journalist wanted to cover the story, thought it was newsworthy, um, did talked around, uh, you know, various activists, did some interviews um, and approached the Labour Party for comment. Um, the Labour Party spin doctors then um, tried to persuade this journalist to abandon the story and said to them that, well, if you're, if you're going to do this, I'm going to talk to your editor and uh, I'm going to tell them it's not a story and you shouldn't be covering it. The proof of the pudding is in the eating. The Guardian has yet to publish anything about it. So the, the story's clearly been quashed by the, the Guardian. But I mean, I can't say that's a surprise because the, the Guardian has acted as really the Praetorian Guard for the fabricated Labour anti-Semitism crisis over the last six years. And this extraordinary story really is the logical end result of that. You know, when you've got every, every single uh, Labour leadership candidate um, at the beginning of last year to replace Jeremy Corbyn, every single one of them, even the so-called left-wing candidate, Rebecca Long-Bailey, condemned Jeremy Corbyn, in effect. They condemned his words as anti-Semitic. They all pledged allegiance to Israel. They all said they were either Zionists or supporters of Zionism without qualification. It was, you know, Lisa Nandy, who at the time was supposedly the chair of um, a group that, used, that called itself Labour Friends of Palestine, enthusiastically um, declared that she was a Zionist, you know? It, it was a really sickening spectacle, you know, and they really made uh, an example of Corbyn. Um, and, and this story was really the, the, the logical conclusion of that, you know. Um, and I just think it, it does tell us so much about the malign political culture in this country, really, that, and, and the malign journalistic culture in this country, that this big story, big international story, could just be completely swept under the rug. And there are, you know, defenders of Kaplan who were trying to say that he, he how could you say he's an Israeli spy, <laughs> you know, like as though his involvement in Unit 8200 was just like some, Right, he wasn't know, a spy, he was just pushing, in an intelligence right. agency. I, li I literally had a couple <laughs> of Israelis on Twitter tell me that, you know, in all seriousness, right. you know, I mean, it, it, it begs belief. I mean, who, who, who else you can call a spy if not someone who right. literally someone who's officer. working for the spy agency yeah he was a, an, an officer <laughs> in an intelligence yeah. agency that's literally what he was that is the definition of a spy you know and I, I think as well um it's important to note that when we talk about espionage it's not merely just spying in the sense of oh well they're observing what's going on just social listening listening um they're they're taking active measures you know they're doing things to uh, to to make difference, <laughs> they want to make a difference in the world, right? They want they want to target. You know, they have offensive capabilities. Intelligence agencies and Israel's no different in that regard. So of course it was sabotaging Jeremy Corbyn all along, um, and it was effective. And uh, now you know what they're trying to do. Um, in my view, the Israeli state still now and the British deep state are trying to ensure that there is never a return to anything like Corbynism 
in a mainstream British political party. So I I mean I I find the um I I really found this Mother Jones story fascinating uh, about Newburger because it really speaks to the issue and it, and this relates to Asaf Kaplan the Israeli spy in the Labour Party as well. I uh, uh, potentially I I find the question of how Israel spies on its you know its allied countries the countries that it's supposed to be the most allied to you know the it's America and Israel are supposed to be these great allies and um, the UK and and Israel are supposed to be at uh, 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 a right wing website Guido Falk said when they I mean they did cover my story which is better than the Guardian did I have to say um, uh, but they said well it's a refreshing change to see that the Labour Party is allying its is is recruiting a spy from an allied country, you know, and the implication being that um, Corbyn would have done it from a hostile country, which is uh, nonsense. But um, uh, the point is that actually, in reality, we know, like Ali, as you were saying before, Israel has a long record of actually spying on the United States, you know, and and. And I find it hard to believe that they're not doing the same. And I and we know that it, uh, Israeli organisations have been involved in subversion of the democratic process in Britain, uh, as well as in the United States. And it's not just on, I say just, but it's it's not only on um, citizens of the US and the UK, but actually government agencies. Like we know, like that, um, as was mentioned in these intelligence sources in this uh, Mother Jones article. Um, the United States counterintelligence considers Israel one of its top threats, you know, along with the the, the evil enemies of Iran and uh, China and the rest of them. Yeah, and in, in fact, the uh, the Mother Jones story points out, I highlighted this bit, that um, during the political fight over the Iran deal, the NSA, the National Security Agency, according to the Wall Street Journal, eavesdropped on Israeli officials, including Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, who opposed the accord, and revealed to the White House how Mr. Netanyahu and his advisors had leaked details of the U.S.-Iran negotiations, learned through Israeli spying operations to undermine the talks, and had communicated and had coordinated talking points with Jewish American groups against the deal. So there it is. As recently as uh, the Obama uh, administration, uh, evidence of um, of uh, Israeli spying on top U.S. government officials to undermine, for the purpose of undermining a policy that the U.S. government and elites considered to be in the U.S. national interest, which was the. Uh, deal of the Iran nuclear program. But, you know, we're assured, Ali, by Miriam Adelson and Benjamin Netanyahu that the days of Jonathan Pollard are long in the past. So, you know, surely there's nothing to worry about. Right. <laughs> Pollard, of course, being the uh, uh, American naval intelligence agent who was arrested in the 1980s for... Uh, massive espionage to uh, for Israel. He passed on major um, U.S. secrets to Israel in the middle of the Cold War, which, uh, from what I've read, of course, there's, you know, a lot that's not known, that, that well, top U.S. intelligence officials considered Pollard to be probably the most damaging spy from their perspective in U.S. history, because the U the Israel was trading these secrets with the Soviet Union, this is the allegation, uh, in exchange for getting Jews out of the Soviet Union, basically to populate the settlements on Palestinian land. And um, so Pollard spent more than 30 years in prison for his espionage and was recently just flown to Israel to a hero's welcome on uh, the late Sheldon Adelson and Ma Miriam Adelson's private jet. I think that's a, 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 a good place to leave it. I think that um, obviously we've, you know, we will continue to doggedly cover the um, machinations of foreign policy and domestic policy of the Biden administration and how it affects 
free speech here, how it affects the, the BDS movement globally, and of course, how it affects Palestinian human rights on the ground. Um, Ali, as always, thank you so much for joining us on the Electronic Intifada podcast. Uh, Asa, I, I think this was a, a fantastic um, start to our video podcast um, era. And yeah, thank yeah, you both. Yeah, I think we, you know, we enjoy the wonderful world of video. And, uh, you know, I'm sure we'll add, we'll develop and we'll add all sorts of fancy graphics. Yeah. So we'll have, you know, <laughs> headlines up on the screen and, you know, we'll be the stars of YouTube and influencers in no time. <laughs> um, I just one quick final word on Jonathan yeah. Pollard. It was one of President Trump's last acts as president to pardon Aviem Seller, who was the Mossad agent who recruited Jonathan Pollard. Um, so we see this kind of continuity here. You know, um, Pollard is is now living in in Israel, um, and yeah, it's it's uh, it's a really wild story when you think about it. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Well, thank you both. It's always fun to do this, so we're happy to do it again. Thanks, Ali. Excellent. Thanks, Ali. That's it for the Electronic Intifada podcast. Thanks to Sharif Zakut, our music maker and production assistant. For news, information, cultural features and reviews and pointed opinion and analysis, visit us online at electronicintifada.net, where you can also post comments and sign up for our daily email digest. Follow us on Twitter at Intifada. Radio stations are free to use this podcast. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, support the Electronic Intifada by rating it and leaving a review. On behalf of all of us at the Electronic Intifada, thank you for listening. 